Hello, good evening and welcome to the second show in Straight Talking English. I'm Catherine, a qualified English teacher who's going to talk you through the AQA poetry and set texts for your literature exam in a most unteacherly way. Quick disclaimer at the start, I am quite irreverent when I talk, but in no way am I disrespecting the armed forces who served in the First World War, because of course second poem we're going to talk about is Exposure by Wilfred Owen. As always, we're going to start with the context. This is written during the First World War of 1914 to 1918. Previous to this, wars had been comparatively quite small. A couple of hundred guys, battlefield, not really involving civilians. So the First World War breaks out in 1914, and the first couple of months, nothing really happens. But there's this outbreak of really patriotic fervour and desire among young people. And a lot of people rushed, joined the army because they had this belief that they want to defend their country. Nothing wrong with that. But they get to the battlefields of France and Belgium and the reality is absolutely grim. All their initial thoughts about how it will be the noble kind of war portrayed in charge of the Light Brigade absolutely shattered. Casualties are tremendously high and later on in the war conscription is brought in, meaning if you're over a certain age and you've got no health problems you are forced to join the armed forces. As a result there is a huge slaughter of young people and our poet Wilfred Owen witnessed it. Wilfred Owen was born in 1893 so he is about 20 when the First World War breaks out. His dad was a vicar, so he's got this religious background. But he's quite an educated guy. He's actually an English teacher. Well, private tutor to a family in France. So I'll give him that. He must be a nice guy if he's an English teacher. I don't know, some of you might not agree, but I'm going to go with yes. And he joins up at the start of the war because he wants to make a difference. He gets there, he sees the reality, and he's absolutely shocked and starts writing his poems for an audience back in England who may not know the reality of war. He goes along fine, well, as fine as you can get. Halfway through the war, he is diagnosed with shell shock, and the equivalent of that in the modern world is PTSD. But that's kind of our modern definition of it, shell shock, as in like negative mental effects as a result of constant bombing, with the contemporary definition. He is shipped off to a hospital in Scotland and sent to recuperate. Luckily, or kind of unluckily, he is in hospital at the same time as another poet called Siegfried Sassoon. And Sassoon encourages him to start writing his poems more seriously. Sassoon is another anti-war poet. So after Wilfred has recovered, he is sent back into the war, like seriously, again, this whole idea is just dated, why would you send someone with PTSD back into the battlefield, whatever, it's 1918, and even more unluckily, he is killed the day before the armistice, so he is killed on the 10th of November 1918, aged about 25. All of his poems deal with what he calls the pity of war. If you are going to remember 
one phrase about the context. It is the pity of war. It's what he seeks to portray. War is not glorious. War is pitiful. Like, the soldiers are not heroes. As ever, let's have a look. Without even looking at the language, let's just have a look about how it's laid out on the page. We've got quite regularly structured verses. We don't really have a rhyme scheme. We've got some half rhymes, silent, salient, but every verse ends with either a rhetorical question or repetition of nothing happens. It's a bit weird. Why would he use these features over and over again? Well, we know why he's using repetition. Repetition is used to highlight and present the main idea of a text. So his repetition of nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, which honestly sounds like some meetings I've been in, shows his main emotion is boredom. He's expecting to go in there, be some magnificent hero. He's just bored. The first maybe three, four months of the First World War was called the Phony War because people, you know, we're at war, it's heavily publicised. But there's not many offensive manoeuvres going on. So a lot of people are kind of thinking, well, are we really at war? Is this how this is going to be? And he's kind of picking up on that heightening of tension, on the promise that it will be glorious and then he's let down. And this is like a really cultural idea which is going on in the UK at the time. He's got these endless rhetorical questions. Is it that we are dying? Well, we've got to think who he's talking to. Who is the speaker addressing? Well, the purpose of rhetorical questions is to provoke thought from someone. It could be that he's speaking directly to the audience at home, as I very much suspect. It could be he's talking to us as any reader, as kind of a universal the reader. Or he's talking to himself. The repetition of this structure, the kind of frustrated, almost like flailing out, it seems like someone who's desperate and constantly just questioning and screaming into the void, are we dying? It's just, it's a really strange impression and it's also backed up by his punctuation. The main structural point I'd like to make is an obsession with ellipsis in this poem. Ellipsis, we know the dot, dot, dot. Don't put too many dots in, by the way. It makes you look strange. Ellipsis is used for an unfinished idea. Everything is unfinished. Our brains ache in the merciless iced east winds that nive us. Dot, dot. Dot. Wearied, we keep awake because the night is silent. Dot, dot, dot. It's this never-ending task that they're never quite going to be able to finish that's represented in this punctuation. He's also got some dashes. Dashes represent an interruption in an idea. So if you're scripting something, an unforeseen character comes in, you'd write your character talking to them with dash because they've interrupted. So if we look at the fifth stanza, it goes pale flakes with fingering stealth come feeling for our faces dash. We cringe in holes. What's interrupted is his place in the world because outside we've got this horrible weather and 
that's interrupted by him hiding for shelter. Speaking of the weather, this poem is all about pathetic fallacy and this personified weather. The question you get quite a lot in the exam is what kind of conflict is shown in this poem? A really obvious answer is World War One. Like, okay, that is true, but we can go a lot deeper. The way the weather's personified is almost set up to be some mysterious psychopath bad guy who is out for them, but they don't know anything about him. Think about the first line. Our brains ache in the merciless iced east winds that knive us. Kniving, when it's used as a verb, think stabbing, which means it's intentional. You don't accidentally stab someone unless you're walking around with a kitchen knife in your hand, blade outwards, and hoping someone walks into you. It's intentional. This character of the wind, of the weather, is out to get them. It's merciless. That's our personification. Personification is used to create a tonal characterisation, so instantly we have this really, really unsympathetic character. Other thing which is personified, and I don't want to say pathetic fallacy again, but it's not really. It's the dawn. Dawn massing in the east, her melancholy army attacks once more in ranks on shivering ranks of grey. I was thinking about the grey thing the other day. It could be metaphorical, it could mean clouds, or it could be literal. Because the British forces, the Allies, fought in khaki green, whereas the German forces fought in grey. It could be making a point that the situation is just as bad for the other side. Or it could be saying the ranks that the dawn is summoning are the clouds. The dawn is ready to fight back with more weather. The line I just spoke about, it's really interesting because we've got our enjambment again I'm going with enjambment because it sounds more French, but some people say enjambment, which, oh, it sounds like a spread. But we'll go with enjambment, where the line, where the sentence carries on to the next line without a break or a comma. That's pretty much always used to indicate something flowing. In this case, it's the time flowing this really really boring time flowing and flowing and flowing another easy way to get into this poem is the color imagery the colors that are mentioned are black white and gray boring 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 think again black and white though absolute opposites could be representing different armies could be could be representing enemies there is one point where another color is mentioned in the weird verse i'm about to talk about which is the dark red jewels dark red associations anger and blood it comes in in not the final stanza but the two before it starting with slowly our ghosts drag home and finishing with love of god seems dying i kind of always this is a bit that's open to interpretation and as i'm the one recording the podcast i will share with you mine but in no way believe that that is the definitive one and only i always see this as almost a crisis of his faith because the soldiers are lying there they're imagining how like lovely home is with crickets little innocent mice but they turn away from that they go back to their dying but since we believe not otherwise can kind fires burn well since we've still got our faith 
then there must be some kindness, there must be some support. Nor if the god's son smile smile through on child or field or fruit. It's almost like, well, if we believe in God, then we know why this is happening. Essentially, it is his circular crisis. God has made us, according to Alfred Owen, so he has a plan for us. So he's sent me into this war, so I'm supposed to be here, but if God did care about me, he wouldn't send me to this horrible place. So... I'm losing my faith, but I'm also getting more faith. It's just coming out as really jumbled. Because as I said, his dad was a vicar. He comes from a really religious background. And I could imagine, with the absolute horrors of the First World War, the pity of war, that it may well have shaken his faith. Let's think a little bit, though, about links we can make with other poems. The reasons that I've gone from Charge of the Light Brigade straight into Exposure is they're a really nice, neat pair. A question about what, how is war presented, how is conflict presented, how are soldiers presented, put these two together because they are the polar opposite. Light Brigade, we've got the glory, when, when can their glory fade? Honour the Light Brigade, honour the Noble 600 blah 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 this pitiful there is nothing good about the experience shown therefore make that connection everything is good in the first one everything is bad in the second one we can make another connection though because it's not just themes we can compare context and we can compare form as well this is written in the form of a monologue whoever the speaker is it's not named that it's Owen, but it's reasonable to assume it's autobiographical. By which I mean, think back to Shakespeare, one character addresses the audience directly, sharing their innermost thoughts and the other characters are not really aware of it. If you studied Othello, that's what Iago does all the time. And this is what this narrator is saying. In terms of monologues, the ideal pairing for this is My Last Duchess, which is probably my favourite out of all the anthology poems, but it is the natural pairing. We've got the Duke in My Last Duchess, who is directing this whole thing at the messenger and implicitly us, and Owen who's addressing the whole thing to us or his contemporary audience. It works because we've got these very different characters coming through. And that, I believe, is me absolutely Owened out. I do not like this poem. I don't really like Owen, actually. He's always annoyed me ever since I studied him at school. So we're going to move on to something slightly more jolly next time I talk to you. We're going to go for Ozymandias or Ozymandias or any other kind of syllable inflection that you choose by Percy Bysshe Shelley. If you've got any questions, any feedback, please let me know. Please subscribe and I will speak to you shortly. Happy annotating.